Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let me encourage you to take your Bible and close it. Maybe put it down by your side. Maybe under the chair in front of you. Imagine you don't have your Bible. In fact, imagine that this whole room is actually void of Bible. So there's none under your chair, there's none in your lap, there's none in your hand. Imagine if this sermon or the service this morning is actually void of all scripture. So no readings of scripture, no singing of scriptural truths. Imagine, imagine if I'm standing up here this morning, set apart for the heralding of the message of God with no message from God. What if, church, what if God never spoke? What if the one true, good, eternal, almighty, just creator God, what if he was also a silent God? What if God never made himself known to us? What if, what if God's ambition was not to reveal himself, but to conceal himself? Have you ever really considered a world devoid of divine revelation? You know, it's possible growing up, living in a time and place in which most of us have, a time and place that is so mercifully saturated with Bibles, it's possible to actually lose perspective on just how completely dependent we are on God's inclination to make himself known. Have you ever, have you ever stopped to consider how reliant we are on the fact that God has been inclined to speak to us? Because the reality is that if God hadn't spoken to us, we would not find him. In fact, in our sin, we wouldn't want to. Just listen for a second to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 18. Listen to the way that Paul speaks of the natural condition of people in Ephesians 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And how does he refer to the Gentiles? That is, those people outside of God. He says, In the futility of their minds. They are, he says, darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We just know so much in our day and time, don't we? I mean, we live in an age of knowledge. So the largest growing field is information technology. If you want to go out and get a job quickly, you position yourself as a knowledge worker. One of the greatest evidences of the curse in our time is that we can know so much while at the same time being completely ignorant of God. How does Paul speak of such enlightened people, people who know so much and yet are oblivious to God? He says their minds are futile. Their understanding, all their understanding, by which they think they're gaining so much knowledge, he says it's dark. Such people, are, they're alienated from God because their hearts are hard, because of what? Their ignorance. 
however highly people may conceive of ourselves, our information, the reality is that because of the darkening effects of sin, our natural state when it comes to spiritual things is not of knowledge. We're in a state of not knowing that which must be known. The thoughts that we have on our own are futile. The reason, the rationality we have, it's a fumbling in the dark. That's what he says. So when it comes to the things that we must know, that is God himself, we are, because of our sin, we're unaware. We have reason, but we need revelation. We have darkness, what we need is light. So what's the Lord's response? How would, how would the creator God, how would he treat such helpless, such hopeless people? How would he, how would he respond to ignorance, our non-knowing that which must be known? Well, he speaks. Think, think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Think of that moment right after sin. How did the Lord relate to Adam and Eve? Did he give them a few weeks, a few months, an eternity of the silent treatment? No, immediately he drew near, he called out to them, he spoke. This is God. We should consider his kindness as we begin this morning. The reality is that God speaks to guilty, ignorant sinners. The reality is that he's spoken to you. And if you're here this morning, he's speaking even now through his word. So the truth we're celebrating this morning is the truth that God is not silent. He has revealed himself. And, and this revealing is what we refer to as his word. So God, in his great mercy, from the very beginning, he has given us his word. That is his communication, his revelation. And in these last days... He's not just spoken audibly, he has spoken incarnately. He's given us his very son, the incarnate word, who himself is God's prophetic message to us. And we have a great responsibility to listen to him. That's really the whole message here this morning. Jesus, church, is our great prophet. Because Jesus has come, we can know God. So let's take just a few minutes to contemplate what this means for us. All right, so with that, please don't leave your Bible on the floor or wherever you put it. Please take it up again. Grab your word of God. Take note of how thick it is, how detailed it is, how caring and loving God has been in giving you this book. Not just one book, but 66 books of revelation of himself. Think back. You can open up to the book of Hebrews once again. Apologize if you lost your place. Page 1001, I think it was. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be in a lot of different places this morning, but this is kind of a foundation that we'll return to again and again this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 in the first part of verse 2. Long ago, the author of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice just a few basic things from this text. The reality that God has spoken. In the past, he's done this through people called prophets, he says. So in prophets, what the Lord did in the Bible was that he, he took his heavenly message and he, 
He brings it to earth. That's kind of his goal in, in bringing prophets. He takes a heavenly message. He brings it to earth. He puts it into the mouths of men and into the language of men. So through the prophets, the heavenly God then all of a sudden has earthly mouthpieces. That's what's happening here. So very simply, it was through prophets that God would speak. This is why as you read through the Old Testament, what phrase do you come to over and over in the Old Testament? Thus says the Lord. Again, we hear this with such familiarity, but think about what this means. It means heavenly revelation and an earth that's, that's darkened with sin. A, a world in which you would not know God otherwise, thus says the Lord. It's happening. God, separated from us because of his holiness and our sin, he's speaking. It means, listen up, God is speaking right here and now. Thus says the Lord. And how many times would this phrase occur? How many times would, would be kind of God to speak to us, to say, thus says the Lord. I'm thinking once, that would be really nice if he would do that, right? Twice would be a divine grace, maybe 20 times, that would be amazing. How about 400 times? Over 400 times in the Old Prophets, we have, in the Old Testament, we have prophets bringing the explicit word of God to bear on the earth. God wants to be known, so he sends these prophets. And so as we look back, who then among these men of the prophets, who was the foremost, who was the chief prophet? Who's the one that stands out among all the other prophets? You know, maybe our minds go to men like Isaiah or Jeremiah, maybe Ezekiel, maybe Elijah. But according to the Old Testament, the most unique, the most significant of the prophets is not actually found in the prophetic books. He's actually found far before that in the man called Moses. And we may not have considered this before, but the truth is that if we want to understand the person and role of Jesus, then we actually have to go back to the person and role of Moses. So who was Moses? Let's take just a few minutes to think on this here. All right, so if you remember back, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, back at Mount Sinai, God's people are invited to hear from God himself. They've been liberated out of bondage. They're being invited to hear from God himself at this mountain. The only problem is they are terrified of God. They refuse to go up and hear the message of God from God himself, don't they? So what do they do? They request a go-between, a mediator, someone to go into the very presence of God, hear from him, and they calm down and communicate that message back to them. And so this is how the Lord dealt with them under the old covenant. He would meet with this prophet Moses. He would speak to him and Moses would go down and render the message to the people. Moses then is the one through whom God mediates his very covenant, his very way of relating to his people. So what we see that is Moses in the Old Testament is a face-to-face -face with God mediating prophet. That's how he's pictured there. But that's actually not all he is. So think back a little bit further. So God's people, think back to when they're in bondage in Egypt. But God's plan is not to leave them there, right? As, as he revealed to Abraham back in Genesis. His plan is to break them out, to set them free. His plan is to deliver them. So who does he send? He sends Moses. Just a few verses from Exodus chapter 6 to get, their, get our bearings there. He says, the Lord says, he says, I, I also established my covenant with them, that is with my people, to give them the land of Canaan, that is the promised land, 
the land which they, in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel. So this is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. All right, so the, the Lord takes this man, Moses, and he says, go and tell the people that I haven't forgotten my covenant with them. I'm, I'm going to make good on it. I'm bringing them out. They'll see the promised land yet. And the one through whom he'll do that is this man, Moses. All right, so, so Moses then is this face-to-face -face with God, this mediating, this rescuing, this delivering prophet. And as we know, this deliverance is achieved by God through Moses in an event we call what? The Exodus. So miraculously, by the hand and power of God, Moses delivers all of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Moses is a redeeming prophet. He's one who comes like God, comes from God, and like in the Exodus, he, he works miracles. The Exodus isn't the only miracle done by God through the prophet Moses. It was just the apex of many other works that God performed through him in the presence of God's people and in the presence of the earthly authorities, even Pharaoh himself, right? So the Lord takes this prophet Moses. He sends them not just to his people, but to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses goes into the very presence of the enemies of God, and he displays the power of God. That's what God's doing through this prophet Moses. He throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. He predicts plagues. The plagues come. These signs are given by God, but God himself tells Moses that Moses will be like God to Pharaoh. That's what he's doing. So what's the point of all this? The point is that when we think of Moses, we cannot merely think of some run-of-the-mill random character in the Old Testament that we can kind of choose to give or take. No, Moses, at least as far as these narratives go, he's the guy, the guy. He is the prophet who is so much more than a mouthpiece of God. Moses is a covenant-mediating, miracle-working, deliverance-giving prophet who comes down from the very presence of God into the people. And the significance of this comes to the fore when we go back to Deuteronomy 18 that we read earlier. And we listen to Moses' words as he exhorts the congregation of Israel. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 18, he says, For the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God promises through his chosen prophet that he'll send another chosen prophet who will be like what? Like Moses. That is, what Deuteronomy wants us, to, wants us to cling to and expect and hold on to is that God's people are looking for 
another covenant-mediating, miracle-working, deliverance-giving prophet who comes down into the people from the very presence of God. That's what we need. And God says that's actually what's coming. Now, fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy now, all right? So almost to the end of the Pentateuch. The question is, has he yet come? Has the Lord done this? Has he raised up one from among God's people to be a prophet like Moses to God's people? Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, right at the end. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did, Moses did, in the sight of all Israel. At the end of the Pentateuch, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to send this kind of prophet. A prophet who's not just a spokesman for God, but who, like Moses, descends from the very presence of God, who's seen God face to face, who embodies the very message that he's been sent to give. And now we fast forward to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. Just listen with me to a few verses from the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was, how would John put it? The Word. He could have used any type of word, any type of metaphor, true metaphor that could describe the Son of God, couldn't he? How does he want us to conceive of the Son of God? The Word. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that is in the Word, was life. And the life was in the light of men. And the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Down verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through whom? Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see what John's communicating here? The eternal word, he says, that is the the eternal message, the eternal communication of God, God's son, the very image, the very revelation of God. John says that word that's eternal, through whom all things were made, that word has taken on flesh. Just as Moses came down from God to give the law, this eternal word comes down from God to give grace and truth. Not to write the eternal law of God on tablets of stone, but to write the eternal law of God on hearts of flesh. We can't see God, John says, but, the, but God, the word, the son, that God has made him known. You see, Jesus, the word, he makes the invisible visible. So unlike any other prophet before him, including Moses, Jesus, John says, is the living 
word. Don't you love that? Living word. He's the alive message. He's the bodily communication of God. You see the wonder of the incarnation? Jesus is the eternal word of God that we not only hear, but we see. In Jesus, we, you see this? We, we can see the word. It doesn't make any sense, but this is, this is the reality that we have in Christ. It's impossible, and yet here we have it in Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting, Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We, we are so completely ignorant. We're so completely lost in the darkness of sin. Yet God, in his grace, according to his promise, he has sought to speak one final time. And he's done so in one final prophet. His son, whom John says is the eternal word. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, come from God to do the work of God. All right, so this is, this is made even more clear if you fast forward a little bit further into the Gospels. A little later on in both Luke and Matthew, almost unbelievably, who shows up again with Jesus? Moses. And not just by a reference, he shows up like that a lot of times, but he actually shows up as a real-life character. So you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? So one day Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up onto a mountain to pray, which was a common practice for him. And yet this time, as he's praying, the way Luke records it, he says that, he says that the appearance of Jesus' face began to change. And his clothing started glowing white. So all of a sudden, Jesus is being wrapped in some heavenly glory right there in front of him. It's like, it's like in just this one space and time, heaven and earth are kind of converging in one, one small space. And then, Luke says, two men appear with Jesus. Remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. And listen to this, Luke 9.30, Luke 9.30. And behold, Luke says, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. All right. So during Jesus' incarnation on earth, Moses visits him. Okay, in case we're a little bit familiar with this passage, that's what's happening. And Moses speaks to him about what? Jesus' departure. Do you know what the word there is in Greek? Exodus. Moses, the instrument of Israel's exodus, their deliverance, he shows up and he and Jesus talk about Jesus' own exodus. What he Luke says, is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Who led the exodus of God's people in the Bible? Well, the prophet Moses. But what we're seeing is that Moses' exodus, it was just a foreshadowing of a far greater prophet who would perform a far greater exodus. Jesus is a prophet like Moses who led an exodus like Moses. So Moses, the great mediator of God's covenant, he came from the very presence of God, spoke to God's people, worked miracles in their presence, led them out of captivity, captivity through death into Canaan. 
And what the New Testament is trying to help us see is that Jesus, the very word of God, came from the very presence of God to mediate a new covenant, a better covenant, leading God's people out of captivity, not to Egypt, not to any human entity, but captivity to sin and Satan. And whereas Moses walked up to the bank of the sea and parted the waters with his staff, Jesus went further and deeper. He walked straight out into the sea of death himself. He went straight to the cross of crucifixion. He gave his own life in order to purchase the pardon of giving up the, per- the pardon of, that would give up his people who were slaves, who are now his brothers. And now as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus, the final prophet, what did he say? He declared once and for all that the work is finished. He gave up his spirit. He went straight into death, Sheol. And on the third day, he broke out of that grave, leading a whole host of captives in his wake. That's what Ephesians says. Jesus, like Moses, he's the long-awaited, he's the covenant-mediating, miracle-working, deliverance-giving prophet who comes down from the very presence of God for the purpose of setting his people free. So listen, we, it's not uncommon to hear people say, whether it be a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist or a neighbor, family member, whoever it might be, claim that they respect Jesus because you know, he was just a prophet. He's like many of the other prophets. We should take that opportunity to rejoice in the prophet who is truly the prophet. Ask them, graciously ask them where, where these other prophets came from because our prophet came from being face-to-face with God. Ask them what miracles their prophet did because our prophet brought people back to life. Ask them what good news their people brought because our prophet brought a whole new covenant of grace in which we live. Ask them what atonement their prophet accomplished because our prophet sealed our pardon with his own blood. Ask them where their prophet is buried because our prophet led an exodus out of the grave. And he sits even now at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's worshiped right now. That's who our prophet is. Jesus is absolutely a prophet, but let's never let him be accused of being just a prophet. He is the promised prophet like Moses. And all people everywhere will see that one day. They'll bow the knee. So what do we do with this prophet? Amazingly, the Lord himself tells us, if you look just a few verses down there in Luke chapter 9, after this event of the transfiguration where Moses and Jesus are conversing about his exodus, soon to be accomplished at Jerusalem, Luke 9.35, we hear a voice from heaven itself. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In a great word of affirmation of this proper role about to be fulfilled in the Son, the Father speaks from heaven and exhorts us to do what? What do you do with a prophet? You listen to him. Earlier we read from a portion of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. You can listen to a couple of those verses again. Acts 3.22, he references Moses. He says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I love how the Bible affirms this for us, confirms it for us. 
We don't have to worry whether or not or wonder whether or not we need to listen to the words and the work of Jesus. It's right here for us. Here's the good news for this morning. God has sent one final prophet. It's his one holy eternal son. And that son, Jesus, has come just as he promised to bless us by turning us from the folly of sin and death. That's how Peter puts it in his sermon. So think, about, think back to Israel's relation to Moses, at least in that moment of deliverance. They did believe Moses in that moment. They did cover the doorposts of their houses with the blood of the lamb. They did flee from the wrath of God that was coming down on sin. And what the New Testament is telling us is that we must do the same. We must believe the message of covering, of atonement, and cover ourselves with the blood of the lamb by faith. That's what the New Testament is telling us. We must get on our feet and flee from sin and wrath that's coming forth. Jesus, the prophet, he has come from God to bless us by telling us the truth. By hearkening to us the peril of our situation and the way out of it. In the message, the way out is repentance and faith. The question is, will you listen to him? That's the application this morning. Will we, will you, whoever's here this morning, believer or non-believer, the question is, will you listen to the word made flesh? So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that this question haunts you like in the right way. What's your plan of exodus? What's What's your plan to get out from under sin and death? Because it's coming. What's your plan from getting out from under God's judgment of sin? You know, people try all kinds of different things. Morality, outward religion, penance. Now I'm here this morning to tell you none of that will help you escape from the wrath to come. Let me invite you, listen to Jesus. He came to deliver you. That's why he's come. That's why he's... That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again. You can listen to him. You can repent from sin and trust that the work of Christ was for you. That his death was for you and his life, his resurrected life is for you. That his glorification is for you even now. If that's you this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't leave without exploring those questions with us. Repent and believe in who Jesus claims to be. Don't be confused about who he claims to be. He claims to be the prophet from God. Don't confuse him with other prophets. He is the only, he is the only prophet, the only God who would actually die in your place, and he has done it. You can trust him. Well, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, the question is the same. Are you listening to Jesus? Let's just spend a few minutes thinking about this. So Jesus, as God's final prophet, he came to reveal, to embody what's true. Jesus came to earth, the very eternal word of God took on flesh and dwelt with us. So in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus came so that we might know what the truth is and so that the truth might then do what? Set us free. That's why he's come. But notice, this isn't actually all Jesus has done as a prophet. 
Because even after his death and resurrection, Jesus made a way to keep revealing himself to us, didn't he? In John 16, he tells his disciples about the fact that it's actually good that he would depart to go be with the Father. Why? Because if he departs to be with the Father, he'll actually send another helper, the Holy Spirit, whom whom he calls what? The Spirit of truth. And when the Spirit does come, what the New Testament reveals to us is that he would guide the disciples in all the truth concerning Christ. The Spirit will, get this, Jesus says, take what's Jesus's and give it to the disciples. That's the Spirit's role. So Jesus, as the prophet, he makes provision for the Spirit to continue his revealing work even after his ascension. What a great kindness to us. And then, think about this, it's through the Spirit that the apostles are then empowered and enlightened to pen the very words of Scripture, which testify the tr- to the truth of the salvation we have in Christ, the hope that we have waiting in him, and the lives that we have to live then in light of the fact that we have this hope coming from us, for us. In other words, because of Jesus' work through the Spirit and the minds and hearts of, of the apostles, we actually have the Bible. Think, think of this glorious book that we have, that we, that we began this morning by closing. Think about what a curse it would be if this was locked, right? Think about before the Reformation times. The Bible was was sealed, it was shut, it was locked, it was chained to the pulpit so that it wouldn't get in the hands of the people who would misuse it. It was just for a few, but now here it is sitting in our laps right here for us. Marvel at the work of God and his revelation to us. Listen, as a church, this is our whole role, this is our goal. God has revealed himself to us in Christ, by the Spirit, in the very word of God, the scriptures. Our goal then is to hold out the truth of the glory of God in salvation, bought by the blood of Christ, as revealed in his word. That's what we're to do here. The point is this, because because of the prophetic work of Christ through the Spirit into the Bible, here's the truth. We're not ignorant anymore. We know what's true. Because Jesus is our great and final prophet, we don't have to wonder what's true. It's right here. Listen, the question is not, has God spoken to me? Will God speak to me? I I just encourage you this morning, you can put that question to bed. You can stop closing your eyes tight and asking Jesus to speak to you because he has spoken to you. It's right here. It's in the Bible. He's written it down. Listen, it may not, it will not answer every question that you have, everything you want to know, but it answers everything you need to know, at least right now. The question is not, has God or will God speak to me? He has. The question is, are you listening to him? Are you listening to him? How would we tell? How would we tell if we're individuals? How would we tell if we're a church who's listening to this final prophet, Jesus? I'll just close with three questions of application for us. Things maybe you can write down, maybe you can meditate on this week. Number one, Christian, is your thinking in line with revealed truth? Is your thinking in line with revealed truth? That is, with what... God has revealed in the Bible. 
Another way to ask it is, are you in everyday life, are you cultivating the mind of Christ? You know, one of the great goals of a culture in the information age is to capture your mind, right? It's actually being monetized now. It's to grab your, bring your habits of thought into conformity with one or another mainstream worldly way of thinking. And we are explicitly exhorted in the New Testament not to let this happen. So are you intentionally, are you bringing your patterns of thought in line with what God has revealed to you in Scripture? Listen to the way Paul puts this in the form of exhortation in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, well, in what way? In what way do we need to guard against being conformed to the world? He says this, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, we all have daily habits. We all have different ways that we engage, we interact with the world around us. The question is, what kind of mind is being formed in you by the habits you've set for yourself? By the media you take in, by the entertainment that you choose to indulge? Is there any way in which your thinking is being hijacked away from Christ and into a worldly, predictable pattern of thinking, whether on the right or on the left? So we're not asking here what's, what's off limits regarding kind of what we take in. I, I want to present a different question. I'm asking, is your mind being nurtured more and more into the mind of Christ? And, and again, I'm not actually speaking of building a Christian worldview here. That is important, but we got to recognize that there are many non-Christians who actually hold to the moral ideology of the New Testament. I'm asking, are you living in such a way that your patterns of thought are in line with the fruit of the Spirit? One way you'll know you're growing, you're cultivating the mind of Christ, is that day by day, week by week, year over year, you're growing in love, joy, peace, and patience. Are you growing in kindness? Are you growing in faithfulness? So I'm not asking, are you... Are you setting your mind on Christian principles? I'm asking, are you setting your mind on Christ, the person? Are you making a way each day to set your mind on things above where Christ is? This is how Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3, isn't it? He wants you to set your mind on Christ who's at the right hand of God right now. And what does he say about that? He says, Christian, you need to set your mind on Christ who's at the right hand of God because by faith, that's where you are. The great tragedy of so many of our lives is that we live not as those who are in Christ at the right hand of the Father, but those of us who are down here kind of fighting worldly battles. Set your mind on Christ. Listen, it seems to me, at least going by the evidence I see, that one of the great strategies of the enemy in our current place and time is to encourage people to a Christian worldview of things, culture, politics, whatever. Be indulged with those things. Fight for those things so long as you leave Christ himself. It seems that a wonderful strategy of the devil would be to help God's people spend their days refining their thinking and talking points on this or that hot topic, all the while completely forsaking actual fellowship with Christ. Are you cultivating the mind of Christ? Are you committing your days, not to the right blogs or Twitter feeds, but to fellowship with him? Are you, that is in word and in prayer. Are you consumed with controversies? 
How much real time? Think about it. Maybe write it down. Think about it this week. Measure it. How much real actual time? How many actual minutes of your actual life are you given to controversies and debates going on in the world? And what kind of fruit is that producing in you? Is your thinking in line with revealed truth? With the very heart of Christ? Secondly, Christian, is your speaking in line with revealed truth? Listen to this very simple, profound encouragement from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, he says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Remember, at the beginning, we talked about how we people on our own, we are ignorant. That's what describes us until the Lord reveals himself. And now we are no longer ignorant. That's Paul's whole point of application. And people who are no longer living in ignorance, people who have put away that way of thinking are what? They do what? They take their newfound truth in Christ that's been spoken to them through the scriptures and they speak it to one another. So we being brothers and sisters of the one final prophet, we profit one another. We speak the truth. I would just encourage us that life together as a church family, it is complicated, but it doesn't, but it, but it's also very simple, isn't it? One of the very practical things that we can do for one another is just know Christ better and speak what we know of Christ to one another. You know, this is how we counsel one another as a church, right? Is that on our own, we get to know Jesus, we learn more about him, we relate to him, we pray to him, we commune with him, we pray with him, we spend our mornings with him. And then during the week, we find that we're speaking to a brother or sister in Christ. And we hear about what they're doing. And all of a sudden, we're freed up from the temptation to try to fix them. You know what we can do? We can give them Christ. We can tell them about Christ. Listen, I don't know. We can say, I, I, don't, I don't know the solution to your problem, I don't, but this is what I know. This is who I know Christ to be. Then we speak to one another. As those who speak the truth in love, listen, we, be, we can be freed up. Jesus being the prophet means that he's the answer, okay? That means that we don't have to be the answer. I love how one pastor puts it. He says, he, says, I'm not, he's not, he says, I'm not the guy with all the answers. I'm the guy who points to the guy. That's who we are to one another in the church. We're not answer men and women to, peop, to, to one another. Jesus is the answer. He's the prophet. He's the final word of God to us. We point one another to Christ. I think this holds true for evangelism as well. Maybe this would take some of the pressure out of evangelism for us. We think we got to be the answer to people, don't we? <laughs> we have so many questions. Maybe one angle in evangelism is just to say, listen, I don't know the answer to all those questions, but I know who Jesus is. Can I talk to you about that? Third question. Is your living in line with revealed truth? Is your living in line with revealed truth? You know, the, the Lord could have left us in the dark as to what kind of life that people now awoken from the sleep of ignorance should live. And again, he doesn't tell us everything about what it means to live a new life in Christ, but he certainly gives us a picture of holiness that we can strive by his grace to conform to. So the question is, is there anything about your life in public or in private that's very obviously out of step with the revealed truth that we have in Christ? Listen to a couple more exhortations. 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your, what? 
former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. You know, it strikes me, in an age when Christians are tempted to hold on to the fact that we have the answers, that we do know what's true, in an age in which we're tempted to misuse that as a weapon against people, the way Peter conceives of it, at least right here, is that people who now have been awoken to the truth will live in light of the truth, not according to patterns of their former ignorance. In other words, you should, you should be able to tell by the behavior of people, even in controversy, you should be able to tell by the behavior of people who actually has been awoken from their ignorance and who's still in it. Paul exhorts us in the same way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, revisiting where we were before, he says, they have been callous, uh, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of uh, manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Is there any part of your life that's given over to lust, to sensuality? Are you greedy for money? Are you impure in any way? Let me just encourage you, because of this prophet's work for us, you are free. Jesus, the great prophet, has led an exodus out of sin into a new realm of sanctification. You don't have to return to Egypt to get your satisfaction, to get your joy like Israel was tempted to do. You can actually leave them and pursue contentment in Christ. We, we have to repent of those things. Leave them where they are. Put off that old enslaved person. Come out of that and into Christ. That's the invitation. You know, the great beauty of Jesus as our prophet, as the one who reveals the truth of God to us, is that we, just, we don't have to wonder what's true. He has already spoken to who we are, where our identity is to be, where we're headed, what we're to leave behind. So Christian, is your thinking, is your speaking, is your living in line with the truth as it's revealed to us in Christ. Jesus has come to tell us the truth so that by the truth you can actually be set free. Are you living free? You know, what we've been considering in this series is that, is that because of the dominion of our sin, we need someone to take over the reign of our hearts, right? And in that light, we have Jesus as our king. And because of the guilt of our sin, we need someone to speak for us to God. That is, we need a priest, and, and Jesus is that for us, and we'll contemplate that soon. And what we've seen today is that because of our ignorance, because of the ignorance of our sin, we need someone to speak for God to us. And in Christ, that's exactly what he's done. God has sought to speak one final time, and he's done so in one final prophet his very own son. And you know what? The, the beauty of the way that the Lord Jesus has set things up is that he speaks, us, speaks to us still, even as the church today, 
through his ordinances, doesn't he? And that's what we come to now. You know, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus speaks a final authoritative word to those who come to him in faith. As we come to the Lord's table, what we bring is our guilt. And he speaks an authoritative word of forgiveness to your guilt. And he says, you're forgiven. As we come to the Lord's table, we come in our shame. And he comes with an authoritative word that says, your shame has been covered by his work, by his righteousness. So we take bread, representing the broken body of Christ, and we hear the message that the very Son of God has taken on flesh. He's actually borne physical pain that we should have borne. He's taken it for us. As we take the cup together, it represents the blood that was shed. We hear the message that the work of atonement, it's finished. Listen, maybe you're tempted this morning. Maybe your temptation is to add to the work of atonement through some kind of penance, some kind of do good enough, something enough. Whatever that thing is, enough, enough, enough. That's what you put down this morning as you come to the table because the final prophet has come, which means the work is done. Your work is to believe. So listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, here's your opportunity to hear your good and gracious, miracle-working, deliverance-giving prophet once again. If you're a Christian and you've obeyed the Lord Jesus through baptism, even if you're not a member of this church, if you're a member of another uh, faithful gospel-preaching church, you should come to the table this morning out of faith. You should hear and participate once again in the final authoritative word of our prophet. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, even though you're not coming to take the bread and the cup, you shouldn't come and take the bread and the cup if you're not a Christian. I would just encourage you, don't miss this chance to listen. Hear the message of the good news loudly and clearly to today. Jesus came to speak to, to receive, to save sinners. If that's you, if you're seeing yourself, if it's being revealed to you even now that you are a sinner and come to Christ today. If you have other questions kind of remaining about the Lord's Supper, we have a few points written there in the bulletin. You can reference that. It might be helpful to you. Before we celebrate together, before we come and hear together this final authoritative word for us in the supper, let's, let's take a few minutes just to be honest with the Lord about the... About uh, ourselves and about the ongoing struggle with sin and temptation that we still have. Let's take a few minutes to confess our own sins to the Lord. After a minute or so, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to lead us in a prayer of confession together, and then we'll celebrate. So let's pray.